You know, when you're little and you look up to your older siblings and their friends, they're out driving and dating and going all kind of places you're not allowed to go and staying out late. Well, if you were lucky enough like Shelly and I, your older siblings would let you tag along. All of my older sisters let us go with them to different events and different adventures. They took us to the Harlem Trotters, Six Flags, camping, football games, even concerts. I saw Elvis more than once as a little kid. Occasionally, one of those friends would also take us places. I was lucky enough to have one of my sister Sheila's good friends, Kim, go into law enforcement when I was about 10. Kim would always come by the house and show me her badge and take me for a ride in her squad car. Honey, those were some fun rides. I still love riding lights and sirens. By the time I turned 18, Kim got a corporate job. She was head of corporate security for a department store called Riches, and she still let me tag along. She hired me as a store detective where I could work nights and weekends while I went to Georgia State. Today, I still love to tag along with someone that I admire that has more or different experiences than I do, has a different expertise or a willingness to share their knowledge with me. Now, let me just remind y'all of the case we're talking about tonight. Molly Miller and Colt Haynes got into a car driven by their friend, Con Nip. It was July the 7th, 2013, in Wilson, Oklahoma. After the police chase, that again got up to speeds of 120 miles an hour, the chase was called off. But it was leaving such a dust trail, the deputies could see where the car went, and it entered a wooden area. Molly and Colt were never seen again. We have no crime scene. We have no sightings of them since that night. Now, they did make a few calls on the 8th, and we'll talk about that, but they were never seen again. Tonight, I've got somebody with me that has allowed me to tag along with her and watch her operate. And let me just tell you something. It was poetry in motion. Maureen O'Connell is brilliant. She is fearless. She is motivated, but she is also a blast. Maureen retired from the FBI in 2016 after 25 years as a special agent. She worked a ton of white-collar crime, violent street gangs. She worked narcotics. She also worked for the FBI's evidence response team. Maureen O'Connell, welcome to Zone 7. Thank you, Cheryl. That was a beautiful opening, and the whole beginning reminded me of the people that, you know, brought me into law enforcement and showed me the light and talked about, you know, the importance of um, focusing on the victims and making sure that everything they need is uh, taken care of. You know, and thinking about all the vulnerable people and how lucky we are to be in a position to potentially help them. And I have to say that I felt the same way about you. I know that since the minute I met you way back at, I think, CrimeCon, at one of the first years they had it, yep. we just had a, we had a good laugh and we had fun <laughs> and, uh, and it's been happening ever since. So thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. And that's something that, you know, I can't say enough for any young detective or young officer or young agent listening. It means the world to me. Even this is my 40th year 
being in the criminal justice field. And I still love the fact that I can call you, run through a case and go, okay, what have I missed? And with all of your expertise, you break it down. We both do, though. We do that together. We just break it down to the basics and, and go from there. And what is your gut telling you? Yep, I agree. I yep. think we're both tracking in the right direction. And, yep. you know. Well, I got to tell people right off the bat, it was real clear that I was going to head to Oklahoma and I was going to get a chance to work with you. You were like, this is going to be great. We're going to be staying at the ranch. You know, we'll look out for you. Here are the directions. So I'm driving and driving. And you're like, hey, you should be here by now, girl. And I'm like, I think I'm closed because it's, you know, I'm seeing some ranches. But, you know, these ranches are huge. Yeah, we didn't realize we were going to Yellowstone. As soon as we got there, like you said, I mean, it looked like Yellowstone when we hopped out of the truck. I, I've never seen a place quite like it. It was stunning. Nor have I. And when we walked in, I just felt like I was among friends immediately. I had the opportunity to meet and be with Paula Fielder. Paula is Molly's cousin. Paula and Toby connected because Toby now owns the property. And again, he was so willing to do anything that we asked, anything that it took, searching night and day using four-wheelers and earth-moving equipment and everything else he could think of. I mean, Toby was fantastic. He was cooking. Are you hungry? You know, the victim's family was just amazing, mm -hmm. hugging everybody, you know, thanking everybody. And then, of course, you, I, I just kind of saw you as the leader of this whole thing, like crafting this out. And you were just so at ease with everything. Like, this is our mission. This is what we're here for. We all care about each other. We care about what happened to Molly and Colt. Let's just get this thing done. And get her done. Get her done. And the thing that I love the most is when you looked at me, and we'd been, you know, just having a good time and socializing for a couple of hours. And you're like, you want to go out right now? And I'm like, cowgirl up. Let's hit it. And we went out and it was dark in the woods. I, again, I felt this sense that there was something in front of me. I didn't know how far. I didn't know what it was. But I just felt like I want to go in that direction if at all possible. Now, just to be clear, I was happy to go out that night, but I was not down with walking deep into the woods looking <laughs> for something. That's why I told Toby, hey, I need a sidearm, man. I'm not going out there in this <laughs> crazy, especially after the stories you guys have been telling me. Oh, my gosh. It was crazy. But then the next morning, I remember talking to Toby, and I was like, I want to go exactly where I was last night. And when he dropped us back there, I could not believe the waterway in front of us. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was like, I don't know what she's thinking because we have not talked at all alone. But I'm interested in that right there. Just so the people listening can understand and have a little more context, we get to the house and Rob and Cindy, who are running this show we're working on, and they want us to come and process the crime scene. They're there with Toby and his family, his just beautiful family, and they're telling stories. They're telling us, this is what we found. This is what we've got going on. This is the information we received from this location and that one. And So Cheryl and I are pretty much just sitting there taking it all in. We're scribbling notes. I'm writing like crazy. Okay, okay, all right. 
we got this, we got that. And we think there's a body of water where we think this, the bodies could be there and this is why. And so we're just going over everything, taking everything in. And then the idea came up to go out right then. So that's what we did. That's, and then the next morning when we woke up and went out there, you're talking about when we found the body of water that we actually worked, right? Oh, absolutely. It was unbelievable. If I was the director of a movie and wanted a place for somebody in the mob to throw a body, this was it. It was just perfect. Like you couldn't even see it because it was just under a canopy of huge trees. And it was like a watering hole that was probably, you know, 30 feet in diameter and probably 15 or 20 feet deep. But th there are times if, if there's a lot of water, it's way deeper than that. And the silt on the bottom was one of those things that we talked about a lot the next day when we were um, going through it. And the walls of it were limestone. So if you had fallen in it, there ain't no climbing out because the wall would just keep collapsing. Right. When we were looking at it as crime scene investigators and people that have worked different types of scenes, you know, you always try to imagine what would the most likely scenario be? Where would the person be? Where would we most likely find them? And in order to do that, you have to, what I call, drop the dominoes. You're thinking about if someone is there doing this, this is what will most likely happen. And maybe they could have fallen down here because of how it is up there, marked with where the entrance is, where the phone call came from, et cetera. So we're running through all these scenarios in our head. And and in, in some respect, it's it's rather exhausting because none of them have good endings. And you're just going through over and over all these different scenarios in your head. I've never worked a cold case where I did not have a crime scene. And we had a thousand acres. And this is what I loved watching you. I tell people there's five senses, but with the crime scene, there's also five. And you just take out the touch because you're not supposed to touch anything at a crime scene. And so where there should be touch, I add your gut. Exactly. And I watched you. You worked gut level the whole time. And here's something that fascinated me. We would all of a sudden, you and I have some funny thing we would say, or then we would break and get some water, or we might break and have a lunch, and then we're telling another story, or we're talking about our families, or we're, whatever we were doing. As soon as whatever that break was, when it was over, you would say, hey, I thought about something a minute ago. Even if we're eating or joking or talking, your mind was still clicking. And when that break was over, you were ready with another suggestion. When we got to the ravine and Toby was, you know, getting the water pumped out. And that's the other thing. I mean, Toby was just remarkable. And so were all the folks that work with him every day. You said, well, I need that water out of there. If we're going to be looking for bones or artifacts, I need that water gone. He was like, no problem. He got a backhoe and he dug some petition out so we could get down there. The men put the pump in there. The water starts going out. And you're like, man, this water, it's got one, you know, the hose has one screen on it, but we need bigger screens. They literally went back to the barn and built us screens. He cares as much about the victims as most of our law enforcement partners do. I've never seen anything like it. He's befriended the families and he's just done everything in his power. In addition to that, he was down there working like he was on a chain gang all day long. It was great. And, and here's the thing. Every single thing 
that we even suggested or thought might be helpful was just done. It was straight action, straight, if there's a problem, we're going to figure it out right here and move this thing forward. Absolutely, because of the people that he had. It's all in the team that you built. I told you what I thought your process was while I watched you. But tell us what your process is. Well, first and foremost, to you know, secure the scene or photograph it or get it all set up in such a way that you're in control of whatever is taken out of the environment. So whether it be a house, a garage, a vehicle, a body, or a huge crime scene like the one we had, we gathered all the information we had. We did distilled it down to what we thought would be the most likely location to search, which is this ravine area that was covered by this bamboo and this tree canopy. And then we went to work and we went to work with a team that were all willing to just, quite frankly, work their asses off all day long. That was really hard work. I honestly felt like I was back on the job. And none of it is glamorous. It's just filthy, mucky boots and pants and, you know, getting stuck in the sandy, silty, wet mud and then hundreds of thousands of gallons of water that we were going through and sifting through and eliciting the help of everyone we could that was there, that was available. But my process is, what are we looking for? What is the best way to find it? And how can I utilize the sources, the the resources that we have with us right now to do the very best job we can? And then, of course, how do we document it? So we documented it on film and audio and everything else that we had. Yeah. I mean, I took tons of photographs. I know that Cindy and Rob were videoing and taking photographs, even with drones. And then, of course, we verbally recorded everything. So, I mean, I think it's well documented. And like you said, it was pretty backbreaking there for a little bit because let me just explain to y'all, when somebody is getting buckets of silt from the bottom of this ravine. Backhoe buckets, not like oh bucket my gosh. buckets. <laughs> dumping them on these tarps and we're going through screens and you're looking for a finger bone or a zipper or a button or a coin, anything that would show a person might have been in there at some point in time. When you have tree limbs and broken off pieces of bamboo, bamboo, after it's been in silt for a little bit, looks a whole lot like a finger. (laughs) It does. And that water was like a bog. It was like bog water, oh wasn't it? Oh, my gosh. It was, un- it was unreal. And so your mind, you, you keep thinking, oh, there's a bone. There's a bone. And then after a while, you've got some leaves. You've got some rocks. You've got turtle shells and mushrooms and all these different things. So you really have to, or I did anyway, sometimes just visually take a break. Yes. Like I'm just going to walk down to the cattails for a minute and then go up the hill for a second because I can't see any more bamboo because all I'm seeing is fingers and I don't want to disregard something because I think, oh, that's bamboo. And you just have to be gentle with yourself and be patient because it's it's slow going initially, but it's always slow going initially in a situation like this. This was a very uh, labor intensive project. And what I mean by slow going is you're going to have all these false hits, false hits, false hits. And after a while, you have to trust that you're going to be able to notice them more easily as time goes on, which absolutely became the the case. And then we were able to pick up our pace a little bit. Still, you know, we were bent over for the entire day 
and just trying to sift through all this stuff. And it was interesting work. Some people were getting all worked up. Look what I found. Look what I found. And I, and I, you know, and you two, to a certain extent, we were always, okay, let's just take a peek at it and, you know, simmer down. I under, I understand why they're getting excited, but I also know that, you know, that's probably bamboo. One thing you did that I thought was smart is you had a separate tray that was completely empty. And you said, hey, that's great. Put it in that tray and we'll come back to it. That's the good tray. That was the tray with the good stuff. We first documented mentally or I had them film where exactly we found it and where the bucket was drawn from. Because if we did find something from the bucket in the southwest corner, then we know to go down there some more. Because with the amount of silt that was in there, we talked to a bunch of people. Um, Toby had talked to experts. And I forget what the number is right now. I apologize. But there was something like a foot and a half of silt per year that would fall since we found them. So we weren't, once we heard that, you know, we were just looking through everything, all the silt on top, but we knew that if we were going to hit the mother load, since it, you know, we're looking all the way back to 2013, that it's going to be a little bit deeper. So that gave us some um, reference, you know, frame of reference in our mind. And then once we started digging and we started finding stuff, that's actually when we started finding the, the bamboo that looked like bones. So I could understand why people were getting excited. But I think it's always important just to keep a level head. And, you know, I'm salty and I, I'm, I'm very reluctant to, <laughs> to get worked up on, on this stuff. And, you know, even during the finale, I'm like, let's slow our roll, ladies and gentlemen. Let's just, you know, see what's happening here. <laughs> but uh, it was great fun. And, you know, it's really important that I thought you handled a lot of that so beautifully. And you are authentic all the time. So you're a Chicago girl. So there's no reason not to bring that out. So when I know there was a, a period of time where they thought they found a tongue, that's not possible, especially after so many years. A tongue ain't going to last a week. So, you know, you've got turtles and you got fish and you got all this, but you were so good at, hey, put it right there. Go ahead and take your pictures. We'll come back to it. And watching just how real you were, there was no pretense about you. There was no, oh, well, I'm a federal agent and I'm on the uh, evidence response team. And, you know, there was none of that. It was, hey, I've got an idea that's going to make this easier. I've got an idea that's going to make this workable, faster, smarter. There's not enough that I can say, if I had to pick one thing, the tray where you allowed the civilians, for lack of a better, to put the things that they thought was critical. Because we had family members there, too, which is another thing. I don't like discussing this stuff in front of family members. When we're what-ifing things, you know, like, for example, what we just talked about, if someone were going to try to get out of this uh, body of water, that they'd be clawing in the side of this sandy sandstone. You don't want to say that in front of family members because they're going to imagine that. And then, sure enough, Molly's aunt told us, or cousin, I think we found out she was her cousin, but um, she told us that, uh, no, it's okay. I've heard everything. I've talked to everyone. I've imagined the worst. I'm good. All I want is answers. Let's go. Say whatever you need to say, because I want to be part of this, part of what's happening right here. Molly and Colt both made some phone calls. Mm -hmm. Molly called 911, then they both started calling friends. So we know that their phones were active until at least seven o'clock the next morning. Which is unbelievable. And where they picked off of. And I mean, you know, you can sense the fear and the um, 
angst and anxiety that uh, those kids were feeling or dealing with. It's going down a rabbit hole. And, and not only that, it's uh, not only imagining the worst, but knowing the worst happened. And knowing you're standing in a place where, you know, this may be the spot where it actually did happen. And I also got the sense they're close by. They're not 100 miles away. No, they're not 100 miles away. I mean, they're right there. And I think we were closer than we probably even realized at the time. But I think this was quick. The disposal was quick. I think these are people that didn't take a lot of time. I don't think they were buried. I don't think there's a clandestine grave we're looking for. I think they are in water. You can cook up the craziest theories, and nine times out of ten, it's just the simplest answer. And if you're trying to get rid of a body, pulling up to that top part and throwing them in, done. Finito. And, you know, and I, I often tell young CSIs that there ain't no Agatha Christie here. It's going to be A to B. And as soon as you figure it out, it's going to be like, well, that was obvious. The hallmark of any good investigator, as you well know, is to go exactly where the evidence leads you. You can have theories. And, you know, some people say, oh, I had no theories going into this. OK, whatever. I have theories when I go into things. And when it's a time to pivot, it's time to pivot. And that's what you do. Now, you said earlier that this kind of work is not glamorous. But I do have to tell the folks something that was pretty funny that happened. I showed my son a picture of you, and you're in your FBI jacket. And I said, this is who I'm going to go meet in Oklahoma. What do you think? And I'm thinking he's going to say, oh, my gosh, FBI agent, that's fabulous, because he's fixing to graduate with a degree in criminal justice, and uh, he wants to go on and maybe do something on the federal level. Well, here's what he said. He looked at your picture, and Huck said, huh. She looks like she didn't pay for a drink in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> I said, boy, I think you are absolutely right. You know, and here's the thing again about you. You are beautiful. You're clearly bright. You've had a great career, but that's not what you use. If all I ever knew of you was over the phone, you are as genuine from the first time I ever had a conversation with you until you are today. There's no pretense. You've never said, well, the director of the FBI said this about me or here are all my accolades or look over my CV. That has never come up in conversation. I know you had a case once where you had 200 suspects. So when you have a situation where you're trying to figure out, I've got these phone calls that don't make sense to me. I've got a car that wrecks that left a dirt trail that law enforcement could see, and I don't know why they didn't go on. It's a small town. They knew who they were chasing. Why didn't they go to him the next day? Now I've got a sheriff that's had some corruption. And now we've got drugs involved. We've got other criminals that are involved. And we've got people staying at the sheriff's house that are on house arrest. And you've got all this mess. And on top of that, unlike some of the stuff where you worked with the street gangs, all of these folks are related. It was a murky mess. It still is. I was so disappointed in what the law enforcement officers at that time, specifically the uh, his uncle, Nip's uncle, was doing that. It just really pissed me off. Pardon my language. It just, ugh, that was the worst. And the fact that he was letting anybody drive 120 miles an hour is just utter nonsense. That type of behavior was allowed from an early age. 
And that's why it continued. And running from the police, it's a recipe for the worst possible outcome. And when I was out there, there was at least one cow that was out of the fence in the roadway. So I'm just telling you, 120 miles an hour, you're dead pretty quick. I think it also needs to be pointed out, he wasn't even driving his own car, of course. He's driving his girlfriend's car, so if he wrecks it or burns up the engine, I mean, it ain't his car. He's got no skin in it, you know. And then he got her to lie and say her car was stolen. Now, again, let me explain to everybody, small town. Who's going to steal your car? Again, everybody knows everybody. So at this point, you and I were thinking the tribal police need to come in and take this thing over. Because the stuff that we really needed, that we felt we needed, was stuff that you needed law enforcement powers to do, like subpoena records and things like that. You know, until you got that information, you're not going to get the full picture. We had big chunks of facts, and that's what you want. You can have your theories. You can think whatever you want to think. But when you you got to get down to brass tacks and say, what are the knowns? What are the known facts that we have for this investigation? And those were the phone calls, the police chase, the things like that. So that gave us a pretty good opening picture into what we were looking at. But it certainly was not the full picture, and it certainly wasn't enough for a warrant or for an arrest or anything like that. So that's why we were we were saying, you know, we'd like another law enforcement entity to take a peek at this. It's it's important and it needs to be done. And two people are dead. There's little or no belief by anyone that they're alive. So it's got to be done. If you could go back, what would you have done day one, minute one? So in a situation like that, minute one, you know, strike while the iron is hot and, and start subpoenaing everything. Just, you know, carpet bomb with subpoenas and start getting answers, especially when you're in a situation where everyone knows each other, most of these people are related, et cetera, et cetera. You have to document, you have to just start pulling whatever you can to create a mountain of uh, factual evidence, stuff that can hold up in court. You're going to have people that you interview that don't want to talk because they're, again, related or they just don't want to get jammed up with everybody in the neighborhood. So you're going to have to rely on bank records, cell phone records, things like that. And you have to have the, the people um, that are too close to this recuse themselves and have others step in, bring in another law enforcement agency, bring in you know the sheriff's department, bring in the tribal police, bring in the FBI, bring in whoever you have to bring in to keep it clean, keep it kosher, and keep it all above board. It has shocked me that so many people involved with Khan and were somehow associated with this case, either butt dialing 911 and saying that he knew they were shot or whatever, or they were out or they were, you know, associated with him with other crimes that he was doing, that nobody has wanted to make a deal. I couldn't agree more. With the passage of time, you often find people whose conscience just demands that they do the right thing, or at least if they're confronted by someone like us, to just finally tell the truth. And, you know, to a certain extent, I would have really loved to interrogate some people, but that wasn't part of, of what we were doing there. We only had a couple days and they were, you know, we were brought in essentially to process uh, what they hoped would be the crime scene. But, you know, I'm a big believer in interrogation. Even if you just get four or five more nuggets, it's just something else to add to that pile. And that's how you know, is law enforcement really serious? Because if you've got somebody that's young 
and they're looking at 15 or 20 years, they would be motivated to make a deal. So I want everybody to know, we didn't just focus on the quarry, for lack of a better word. I mean, as you said, we went to the four corners, but kind of explain this ranch, these thousand acres. He's got his own lake right near the house that you can see from the house. Then there was also a lake that was adjacent to the property where people would historically come up on their boats and right into the area behind this quarry area. And the reason this place was important was because it was well known to all the the young guys that lived around there because it was like the best fishing anywhere near there. People go there from hundreds of miles away to fish. It's just a primo spot. So that little area is well known to Nip and his family members, and they have boats and they have a pier right across that you can see from standing there. So it's one of those locations where in this location, all the information, the phones pinging, et cetera. And then we learn all about this fishing hole. We stand there, we turn around, there's the fishing hole right behind us. And so things were clicking into place for you and for me, I think, where we were like, this makes sense. This makes sense. Things that were scattered about before and were just facts written on a sheet of paper. When you get out there, boots on the ground, on scene, and you look around and you see these things like the fishing hole. And then on the other side, the pier that those guys used to hang out on. All those things together just started to gel for us. Absolutely. And here's the thing for me. When we saw the pier and we knew that was their land, you and I started to ask Toby, on your land, have you found anything like marijuana plants or anything else that would be some type of illegal activity? In some ways, that's kind of smart because if somebody's going to find something like that, the search warrant's not going to lead back to their property. It's going to be about your property. And that was key to this whole thing because Toby said, when we asked him this, he said, yeah, as a matter of fact, when I first bought this land, they were always out around here. And I think they were just up to no good and, and using my property so that they wouldn't get jammed up if something bad happened. So again, that was another one of those things that just clicked into place. And made perfect sense when we're putting this puzzle together. Well, Maureen, I can't thank you enough for letting me tag along with you on that scene. And I'm going to end Zone 7 the way I always do with a quote from somebody from my Zone 7. And this comes from Ashley Wilcox, Court TV. Trust your gut. That's the best advice ever. It's true. And I don't think that could be truer tonight than listening to Special Agent, retired Maureen O'Connell. I'm Cheryl McCollum, and this is Zone 7.